The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. This government believes in reducing bureaucracy. Well, figures I have here say that your department's staff has risen by 10%. No, certainly not. Well, what figure do you have? I believe the figure is much more like 9.97. Well, you see, it has been suggested, Mr. Hacker, that your department is less interested in reducing bureaucracy than in increasing it. How are you going to meet the challenge? Uh, It's far too early to give detailed proposals. After all, I've just come here direct from number 10. From number (laughs) 9.97. But the uh, broad strategy is to cut ruthlessly at waste while leaving essential services intact. Well, that's what your predecessor said. Are you saying that he failed? Uh, Please, let me finish, because we must be absolutely clear about this, and I want to be quite frank with you. The plain fact of the matter is that at the end of the day, it is the right, nay, the duty of the elected government in the House of Commons to ensure that government policy, the policies on which we were elected and for which we have a mandate, the policies, after all, for which the people voted, are the policies (laughs) which, finally, when the national cake has been divided up, and may I remind you, we as a nation don't have unlimited wealth, we can't pay ourselves more than we've earned, are the policies... I'm sorry, what was the question again? Morning, London. It is Thursday, October 16, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be And welcome to the show today, where I guess our main theme is going to be economy and politics, since it's couple days after the Canadian federal election, but we'll also be talking about uh, some other follow-ups on issues we've discussed before on the show, including uh, some more fallout on the uh, London sex show issue that we discussed last week, and on the Pan Am Games, which has now reared its ugly head again, uh, and something we discussed on a previous show. also want to talk about the economy. Is it all better now? Everything fixed up now that the government's bailed everyone out? And I want to also talk a little bit about uh, the aftermath of the election and guilt-free voting. Do you feel bad about who you voted for? Do you feel bad if you didn't vote? And uh, would you have done it differently looking back? It'll be an interesting issue. But first off, who won the election? And if you've got any opinions on this, you can call in, please. 519-661-3600 is our open line number. And I haven't given this out often enough, as I should, our email is just right chrw at gmail.com and of course you can catch up on all of our uh, past ar- archives of past broadcasts of just right at justrightmedia.org online now what an election and it's interesting to see some of the reaction to it. it's now two days after well really one full day and uh, haven't got the exact figures, depending on which paper you've got in your hand and what time they went to uh, press, you might see a little bit difference in some of the, the actual seats they list. Last I heard, and I think I did this sometime yesterday, but basically the picture's the same. 
Uh, election 2008 in Canada, Conservatives up 19 seats to 143 out of 308, just 12 short of a majority. Liberals down 27 seats or 25, depending on who you, who you listen to. Either uh, And they got 76, 78 seats. I heard both of those different. And, of course, the BQ, NDP, and others share the rest of the seats. Apparently, this election was the all-time lowest voter turnout ever, which, uh, to me, I think indicates a bit that perhaps a lot of liberals stayed home and didn't vote, and while others probably went out and voted Green or NDP. All-time lowest liberal vote ever, uh, apparently, since Confederation. And... Uh, I mean, for me personally, there was one little bit bit of good news, and, and uh, I know a lot of you might think this is mean, but hey, Sue Barnes is no longer my MP in London West, and though I, you know, though I haven't had a party to vote for in many federal elections, and so I didn't, and we'll talk about that later, but this time, thanks to Dion and his, his green insanity, I actually had a party to vote against, and apparently thanks to the Green Party itself in London West, the votes that went to the Green candidate in that riding could have made the difference, apparently, you know, in keeping the incumbent in. If, of course, one makes the assumption that those votes, quote, belonged, end quote, to the incumbent in the first place, which I do not. But it is a bit of icing on the cake, isn't it? And, of course, there's the one lone standing liberal in southwestern Ontario, London North Centre MP Glenn Pearson, who expressed great bitterness at, at the way the election was run and accused the Conservatives of running a campaign to ruin Dion's reputation. Ironically, there were a bunch of other Liberals who were bitterly blaming Dion for the ruining of their reputations and electoral failure. So uh, there's rumors circulating in the Toronto Star today that Dion may, may um, you know, step down as leader today, although the Liberals themselves, I understand, are denying it, but um, I can't really see that Dion will be the leader going into the next election. Can you see that? But, uh, you know, and I recall back on our May 22nd show, one of the subjects we discussed was Al Gore, David Suzuki, and Glenn Pearson. What are they up to? And I think the Conservatives in going after Dion were just pointing to the obvious, and if Glenn Pearson can't understand that, I think he's in the wrong business. Notice some of these uh, other um, commentaries in the free press. Paul Burton saying, uh, you know, what a painful journey and what have we learned, he says. We learned that Stefan Dion's English is less than satisfactory, at least for a potential prime minister. And we learned that what a man says, unfortunately, is not as important as how he says it. And then we see Michael Van, or sorry, Michael Dentant in the free press saying the same thing, that they, the conservatives were heaping mockery on Dion's poor command of English, and you know he says the Harper team is a classless bunch. Look, Dion himself proclaimed himself handicapped during this election, and you know he said, "Oh, I can't hear well. Oh, my English is poor, and this is the this is the handicap I have. That's why, you know, the rest of Canada doesn't understand me." Well, I got news for you. I've lived among immigrants who have great difficulty with the English language, and they still speak very intelligently. They might even have to use very broken words, and they can still speak intelligently. Uh, you know, Dion, I think, was using his, quote, handicap to hide behind his true handicap, which was green, the liberal platform, for heaven's sakes. That was, that was a disaster from, from start to beginning, and anyone who was, uh, you know, 
promoting it was a fool. And that's why you see writers like this, like Paul Burton and the rest, they want to separate the ideas from the person, you see. Because, it's, well, yeah, we weren't really, no, no ideas in elections. Who would ever think of such a thing? If you're voting against somebody, it's because you don't like their accent. Well, that is a form of racism in a different form. I don't know what you want to call it. But, look, Dion was incompetent as a leader. And I happened to catch, quite by accident, a one-on-one -on -one interview uh, on CBC with Peter Mansbridge and liberal Stefan Dion. And it was one day before that so-called embarrassing incident where he had to be asked the same question three times and still no answer was forthcoming. Uh, you know, <laughs> what would you... And the question was a real simple one. What would you dif do different from Harper with respect to the economy? So it wasn't, wasn't that. But during that interview, Dion revealed that he had no particular finance minister in mind. You know, here we are in the middle of an economic crisis, and he couldn't even tell um, the interviewer that who, who the finance minister might be. He was utterly incapable of discussing any issues. He ranted, uh, you know, we must win, we must win, the liberals must win. And it was his, his only incantation. And it was obvious that anyone who looked at this person could see he had no plans, that he was making up policy as he goes along from interviewer to interviewer, telling them what he thought that they wanted to hear from him. And that so many liberals were so furious that anyone should pick on Dion for his three-starred interview was, uh, to me, the greatest spectacle of hypocrisy in this election. Uh, ironically, this is funny too, on the same day, we, it's revealed that the Canadian economy had just created 107,000 jobs in the month of September. And then, of course, uh, the other sides all said, well, yeah, um, it's the nature of the jobs, 85,000 of them are part-time, so they don't count, you know. Well, <laughs> I got news for you, get used to part-time jobs. Get used to self-employment. Get used to the service economy. Conrad Black disagrees with, with me, as we'll see later. But for now, I'm sticking to my story. Another sub-story we see in this whole election thing is it's an election we didn't need. We wasted $300 million. Yeah, that's the kind of argument I've heard. Well, did we? Did we really? Considering all the democracy and citizen participation propaganda these same folks preach day in and day out, it's surprising how much they resent an opportunity to vote in a general election and how they always despise the person that offers them the opportunity to vote. And, you know, they're the same people who want coalitions and citizen involvement and all that kind of stuff, but they don't want general elections. Oh, no, that's 300 million bucks, and we actually get a choice that means something. And then, you know, media members included, by the way. And, and, you know, since when is winning 19 extra seats a waste for the party that won them? Uh, I mean, only 12 short of a majority. And I think the election that we had this year is the one we won't have next year. So count your blessings. The pain is already <laughs> over. And I wouldn't worry too much about another election coming soon because um, Harper effectively has a majority government, if not a literal one, especially in the short term. And given his record over the past uh, couple of terms and uh, the debts of the Liberal Party, which they say are overstated, but we may not have another election for three to four years, uh, assuming Harper even wants to hang around for much longer, given some conservative fortunes. But yikes, let's not go there yet, okay? Um, now, I was watching the election, and in the closing weeks of, as we got closer to voting day, two sides certainly polarized. And you had on the one side the Conservative Party, and on the other side you had the ABH Party. Of course, in the middle is, is the voter and the Canadian citizen. 
And for those of you who didn't hear about the official formation of the ABH party, that never really happened, but it did occur unofficially. The moment each of the non-conservative party leaders and the unions and government subsidized artists and the rest of them all announced their mutual participation in the Anybody But Harper campaign. And there you have your ABH coalition. And, uh, you know, this was far more, I think, than fear and symbolism, although it was both of those. Um, but it was also proof, I think, that for the first time in recent memory, Canadians had something resembling a choice in a federal election, which is amazing how many stayed home thinking there wasn't a choice this time. It w you know, this was proof that all of those parties in the ABH coalition each recognize that they all share the same anti-capitalist, anti-freedom, pro-green, pro-carbon tax philosophy. If voters could could not bring themselves to at least vote for a particular party, this election sure provided a lot of evidence of reasons to vote against some parties, or not to vote at all, as, as I'm sure many liberal voters chose to do. Now, given that Harper was governing from a minority position, it's also remarkable how much the other parties held him responsible for the policies of the day. And, uh, of course, Canada has never had a real conservative party in a majority position in this country before, at least not one without the progressive label on it. Now, now that we have, still have a Harper minority government, though certainly a larger one, what can we conclude by all of this? NDP leader Jack Layton warned Harper that he cannot govern as if he had a majority, although probably <laughs> the, the exact opposite is the truth. Can you see, can you see Layton trying to force an election in December or in January, uh, I don't think that's going to happen. So, and then you hear locally here Irene Matheson, um, the one an NDP can or MP in the midst uh, of all this blue in southern Ontario. Mr. Harper has to listen to the ideas of others, she said. And I thought that was funny because I don't can't really think of a single new idea ever coming out of an NDP government. Rob Peter to pay Paul. I mean. The idea of the amoeba, it's the use of force, the, the law of the political jungle. Uh, you know, what the, what the NDP calls ideas are, are rationalizations for using force in an otherwise peaceful marketplace. That's what they're doing. But, of course, she says she wants to promote social democracy, and another adjective, which means not. When you, when you put an adjective in, a word like, in front of a word like democracy, you might as well say not democracy, because uh, it doesn't need the adjective and, of course, progressive governments. And here again, the adjective means not progressive, but socialist and fascist and otherwise government interventionist. Now, interesting, this is the third consecutive minority government. And you hear all the political pundits right now talking about how, well, it's, it's, it's regionalism. It's a problem with regionalism. And that's how, why this country's always going to be, be this way. And I think when I was thinking about this issue... I, you know, in this regard, I think the bloc has really earned its name. It solely is responsible for the fact that the rest of Canada today does not now have a majority conservative government and is thus unable to govern itself free of the narrow interests of Quebec. Consider how the map would look if you took those 50 seats or whatever they are out of the situation and just looked at the rest of Canada. I mean, you start to see Quebec really is a separate country. It sounds like they want to still be one, too. But that's something that will be subject to a lot of discussion and analysis over uh, the coming years, I am sure. Now, uh, before we move on here, I, last week I explained uh, why, although I was scheduled to do so, I didn't appear on a CTS television show on, 
on all in the line viewpoints with host Christine Williams on um, the Crossroads TV system, which is cable 16 on, on Rogers here in London. And I also mentioned how Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, though, got my spot instead and my, uh, and my subjects. And it aired last week, Thursday. And he ended up getting the topics I wanted to do on the show, but it was uh, really interesting. And that show, which also included online blogger Reverend John Williams, uh, really turned out to be an interesting show and covered a span of topics that I, I really could do a number of shows on. I was talking to uh, Taff about it, my operator, this morning. And uh, so we're going to take a break. You're going to hear them when we come back, and you'll be hearing an excerpt from that show aired live on CTS one week ago today. Or in other words, remember this, it was five days before the Canadian federal election. And then when we return, we'll be talking about guilt-free voting versus guilt-free (laughs) non-voting. And we'll be back right after this quick break. Thank you. Hi. Okay. It's nice to be back in Canada. Oh, I missed it so much. Hi, Canadians. God bless you. Honest to God. Don't you miss Canada when you've been away? I know. So do I. I was in Quebec for about four days. Whenever I get back to the country of my birth, I'm a real happy guy. And from people are passing blame. People are passing blame. And just by looking at the polls, how Harper at one point was poised to win a majority. You know, Ever since this fiasco in the yeah. economy, the polls have registered something quite the opposite. The thing is that the banking system that is failing right now is the exact same one that we've had since the, the 1930s. Uh, the monetary policy we have right now is the exact same one that we've had since the 1980s, brought in by not just conservatives but by liberals, to suggest that this was all caused within the last two and a half years or however long the conservatives have been in power is ridiculous. Um, and I know that people are afraid. People but are. I think, mm-hmm. I, and, and you know, I don't think it's the role of a prime minister at that point to sit down, take out his hanky and go, oh, I'm feeling for you. The, the, the proper role of a prime minister is to say, I'm not going to let my emotions get the better of me. I need to hold up things for you. Okay. I need to show you that this economy is not as bad as the fear mongers would have, it, have you believe it is. And that there's no reason to go switching gears and rushing headlong into a spending spree when in fact it's economically impossible to reverse a worldwide crisis by spending in Canada 800 million dollars or whatever the liberals or or NDP want to spend. It is just opportunism on the left. They're trying to say that, you know all those billions or millions we wanted Mm -hmm. to spend? Let's spend them now and that'll fix things. Well, that has nothing to do. Their spending plans have nothing to do with repairing the economic system Mm -hmm. because they cannot do so. It's Mm -hmm. like throwing pebbles in in Lake Ontario and saying you're going to fill it. But Harper is getting the blame. It it seems to be... Whoever's in power, in the polls. whoever's in power, yes. whoever's in power will mm-hmm. always get the blame. It's not right. that they're conservative or liberal; it's that they're mm-hmm. the ones in power. And if you're afraid, you want to blame the government, whoever's in power. Right. It was right. FDR who who actually did a lot of spending in order to shore up the American economy before the Second World War. Of course, the war was the real bonus financially, but but. 
prior to that, you know, they built the Hoover Dam, they built the, the, the interstate highway system. Many things were done during this, during this period that was spending for the sake of the citizens and the, and the evolution, development, and, and strengthening of the economy. And that's essentially what Mr. Dion is talking about. I mean, this is not alarmist behavior. I know the man. He's not, he's not alarmist. He's very calm, and he's smarter than most people. And, 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 and caring. Yes, he is caring, and I'm not as dispassionate as you are. I do feel for the person on the street uh, and in the bank. Oh, so do I. Everybody's Quite suffering right now. Yeah. Uh, but again, I'd like to reframe the whole thing and point out, I just want to be a little bit more clear about my perspective on what's going on here. The mm -hmm. collapse, for me, is due to the, I mean, in the, in the 1817th and, and, and 1600s, there was, a, there was a, a global economic system that was based upon the enslavement of African people. Now we're enslaving children and using them and this is the moral okay, but, failure. But who do you who do you blame here for everybody. the downfall of the economy? Us, we all well, have yeah, to but change. you're being fair in saying everybody because yeah. people obviously spent more than they could have afforded, which is what started the whole thing from the states. But you see, Stephen Harper is the one now getting the blame for this. Yeah, no, it's it's not Stephen mm -hmm. Harper's fault. It's not the it's not Jean Chrétien's fault. It's not even Pierre Trudeau's fault. It goes back much further. I would blame government. I wouldn't blame any particular party because it's all of them have been involved in it. They're all in favor of keeping the system as it is even after this election, and that is allowing banks to issue as much money as they want, lend it out, and take some chances, mm -hmm. and hopefully we'll, you know, we'll be able to honor our debts as they come due. That's Before we problem. go for a break, let's go now to Nini on line 8. Hello, Nini. And, of course, we're not going to be going for a break. We will continue that conversation right now. And, of course, we know how the election has already turned out at this point. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now till noon. I'm Bob Metz, and you can call in at 519-661-3600. Every election, our collective consciousness struggles with the dilemma of democracy and of voting. Many people dutifully vote, citing the fact that voting was a hard-earned right, and to not vote is, well, akin to being undemocratic. And, you know, their hearts are in the right place. I've got to admit, I can't argue with that. But, then they go further and they argue that those who don't vote have no right to complain about the governments they subsequently get. And some have even gone so far as to suggest that we should have forced voting and mandatory voting and things like that. Heard someone comment on the radio the other day that he can't think of a single reason not to vote. So I thought of a few, because there's lots of reasons not to vote. And remember that your vote is a right. And if it is a right, anything that's a right involves a choice. If you haven't got a choice, you haven't got any rights. Plain and simple. Somebody forces you to vote, well, you don't have the right to vote anymore. You have to. You might still be living in a democracy, but uh, the right to vote will have been taken away from you. That's the case in some countries. I think New Zealand does it that way. But uh, not, I wouldn't consider that a, a democratic choice or even a free choice, certainly. Sure, you can vote for none of the above or something like that. But there are other reasons not to vote for any of the options that are given you. And one of them would be that you believe that the lesser of a given number of evils is still evil. That, that, that all the choices you have are moving in a direction that you don't want to move in. So, you know, if you vote for one of them, how can you then complain about the government? <laughs> See, I look at it the other way around. Uh, it's the people who don't vote consciously, who have every right to complain about the government, not the ones who vote blindly 
and then get the government they want and then start complaining. Isn't that kind of obvious to me? But that's not how 99.9999% of you are talking. I don't hear it like that. Another reason you might not want to vote for a party is because you don't agree with uh, having your, you know, $1.75 taken from you each and every year, uh, you know, to be given to that party. Because that's what they started doing a couple of elections ago. You know, they were protecting us from corporate, uh, all those nasty corporations. So they stopped corporations <laughs> from and unions from giving money to federal parties, and they just took it from the taxpayer. And maybe another reason not to vote is because the parties are all the same. Same policies, higher taxes, more banning, more regulations, all interventionist policies. I couldn't possibly vote for one of those parties if that's what I had a choice of five of. Another reason you might not want to vote is because you don't believe in socialism or you don't believe in fascism. You refuse to consent to your own enslavement or to the enslavement of others. To me, that's a great reason not to vote when those are your only choices. You know, there's an old legal maxim that says, to those who consent, no injustice is done. So if you consent to the government you have and they start treating you unjustly, uh, are you in a position to complain? Or is the guy who didn't vote for that government in a position to complain? Seems to me it's the latter. You know, in communist, fascist, and totalitarian countries, they still have elections and people still vote. You get a choice of a given number of candidates, all from the same party, all spouting the same political dogma. And, uh, you know, how is that really different if you have five different parties all calling themselves something different, but all spouting the same political dogma, you know? And another myth, and you hear this all the time, if more people voted, we'd get better government. What nonsense. The re reality, and we've talked about this before on the show, if more people voted, it would make no difference to the type of government we get. But it would cause those who voted to share in the moral and psychological responsibility for getting the bad government that they voted for without knowing what they were voting for. And, you know, far from being disqualified from expressing criticisms of government if someone doesn't vote, the person who consciously doesn't vote, I think, for a given number of unacceptable options is the person most innocent and the creation of the bad government that may ensue. How does he earn a right to comment on government policy if he's voted in favor of it? Uh, it just it boggles the mind. Oh, okay, you voted for that, now go ahead and complain about the thing you supported. If you want different options at the polls, if you want better government, if you want something different, you have to have different parties that believe in different things. Political parties are both the means and the ends in this process, like it or not, and I don't, but that's the way it is. And you know, which direction a particular party will take us depends entirely upon that party's basic principles and its basic philosophies, both as stated or as advocated and not stated explicitly, but certainly as practiced policy. You can always check that out. Now, the ABH Party Coalition, anybody but Harper, Liberal, NDP, Green Bloc, which was actually Elizabeth, May, Elizabeth May's ideal election outcome, which we talked about last week, they're all driven by the same philosophy, liberal fascism. And we talked about that in great detail on this show. And while the conservatives have traditionally compromised their own stated ideals and principles, because at heart, you know, at heart they really share a lot of the principles of their opponents, and that makes them a little bit weaker, but still in a better position than are those parties. If you want green, vote red, say liberals, and, uh, well, that's apparently what people did uh, or didn't do. So that's just interesting uh, observation there. Now, 
going to switch subjects now right here in midstream, which is a little bit still about elections, though, but we're switching into another kind of an issue because I'm going to sort of segue into the economy now. And uh, but first, I ran into this article, which was ostensibly about um, the American election. And uh, this appeared in London Free Press, October 11th, and it was written by uh, an author we had a, as a guest on our show here on September 11th, Salim Mansour. And it was entitled, Put Your Thinking Caps on America. And, of course, it was about the election, but that's not what caught my attention here. It was the subtext that caught my attention, which essentially dealt with the dumbing down of America, although that's a term he never used. And he writes, quote, 20 years ago, a dense meditation on the state of higher American education by a political philosopher at the University of Chicago rose to the top ten of the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind discussed how liberal education, by pushing cultural relativism in American universities over the previous 25 years, had undermined critical thinking. According to Bloom, Plato himself held that philosophy, not history or anthropology, is the most important human science. Cultural relativism is anthropology's revenge on philosophy, writes Mansour and subversion of critical thinking or reasoning. The function of rational thought is to assist individuals learn how to discriminate between good and evil, between right and wrong, truth and falsehood, beauty and ugliness. But for such discrimination, there needs to be standards, measurements and criteria by which what is good or true or beautiful can be discerned, appreciated and separated from what is evil or false or ugly. American modern history is man's greatest experiment in building a free republic protected by the devotion to rational thought. Since the 1960s, however, the corrosive politics of cultural relativism and erosion of critical thinking have left the United States vulnerable to those who do not take kindly to freedom. And, of course, that situation applies here in Canada, too. And that, of course, I think is because most people do not understand that freedom is the standard. And if you destroy the standard, then anything goes. Today, most people have been taught that it's freedom that has no standards, that it's freedom that means anything goes, that it's freedom that's guilty for having a laissez-faire, I-don't-care attitude, such as the one we discussed last week and we'll be talking a little bit more about in a moment. And you hear it coming out of the mouths of all the politicians. Yet it is freedom and capitalism that have humanized humanity as was so clearly illustrated by Dr. Walter Williams on a clip we played a couple of weeks ago. So we're going to take a break now. We're at the half-hour point, and we have some important ads to bring to you. But first, you're going to hear a little bit more from that clip we had before, which features Christine Williams, Reverend John Williams, no relation, I don't think, and Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, this time on the economy. And when we come back on the other side, we'll be talking about the market meltdown. Are things all better now? Can we expect things to uh, you know, look up? And uh, see what I found out. We'll come back right after this. Now, to start, I'd like to know what the two of you think to begin with. Should the banks, should the governments have become involved at all, beginning with the United States, in bailing out the banks? Do you think it was a good decision or a bad one? I'm going to start with you on this one, Reverend Williams. Well, I think that it was a necessity, at least a perceived necessity on the part of legislators. They did what they believed to be what was necessary to help America and help the global economy. And, and that's, you know, I, so I think that they, they acted in, in good faith. I would say that, that really what I'm seeing here 
is the consequences of, of kind of bad moral behavior on the part of the, the global economic system. It looks like that, and I'll give you an example. So you think the financial institutions are greedy? That's your premise here? Well, I'm not, no, I'm not even pointing out their greed. I mean, that, that's their whole purpose in, in existing, the greed. It's, it's more the way that, <laughs> the, the, it's more the way the, uh, that greed is being expressed at, and the consequences and negative impact it's having on children who are being exploited worldwide in order to support this economic and financial system. Mm -hmm. Paul, you're feeling on this uh, no. intervention by yeah. government. No, it's absolutely the wrong thing to do. It's a hair of the dog. You know, uh, mm -hmm. a drunk has gone out and gotten drunk, feels really horrible and is begging for some mercy. And we're asking, should the government give him a, a couple shots of uh, gin in the morning so that he doesn't have to feel the pain, knowing full well that tonight that drunk's going to be out and doing it again. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're setting them up so that this horrible... Uh, financial situation can get even worse. We're prolonging and worsening the situation. And really, the root of all of it is not necessarily just making credit easier to get for people who can't afford it. But uh, the whole system that we've had, I mean, we had this very crisis in the 1930s. And six very good economists from Chicago said to uh, Roosevelt at the time, uh, look, what you need to do is make sure that banks don't lend out the money that they don't have on deposit. It's the fractional reserve system uh, where banks are allowed to create almost as much credit as they want. In Canada, there is no reserve limit. They can make as much credit as they want. And their only fear is whether or not someone's going to come and ask for their deposits to be turned into currency. Yes, I'm going to ask you the same thing I asked John. Do you yeah. think the financial institutions were being greedy? Uh, or, as he put it, that's what they do. That's I, what they're in business for. Well, they're, they're in business to make profits. Um, I think they were... They were allowed to do which, that which they ought not to be doing, but which they have always been permitted to do, which is to make as much money as they want in the form of credit, lend it out, collect interest on it. They should instead be saying, I'm borrowing from the depositor and lending that money out to someone else while the depositor is not permitted to withdraw it. And that way, there's no stretching out of this, uh, you know, this making of phony money, money that can be uh, subject to a crisis. Instead, we're just lending at interest, and uh, you have a relatively stable economy. Keep mm -hmm. the money supply even, don't allow these fluctuations, these ex uh, expansions and contractions, and you won't see the nightmare that we're going through right mm -hmm. now. And just heard Stephen Harper, I don't think he, he, he takes that seriously. Just like George Bush a, f a few months ago. It's like, the, don't worry, be happy. And they have the same attitude because they share the same ideology, the economic laissez-faire. I will give you an example of your laissez-faire, I don't care approach. We have this laissez-faire, no care approach. When you have this laissez-faire approach, they have the same uh, philosophy, the invisible hand. He believes in the invisible hand. We could have been in the forefront of this area, but it's this hands-off attitude. Doing nothing is not an option. Mr. Harper, doing nothing is not an option. It's as though there's this kind of cold-hearted attitude that we're going to let everybody sink or swim, and you have no plan along those lines. It's all uh, let things just keep on flowing. And that's, a, that's a recipe for trouble. I think that the government has a role to play right now. 
I think the state has a role to play to help the companies and to help the workers, the first victims of that crisis. What we have proposed yesterday has nothing to, to do with doing nothing. It's to act right now. There are a lot of things to do for that. We need to have a government that believes in the role of the government to help the people. And we were talking about the economy. You heard just before that break there, I think we had a few things played out of order there. However, you heard the three socialists all saying no to laissez-faire. Was it the four of them? But uh, you can hear the extreme division and what they are all afraid of, too. You know, you can't have hands off, uh, down with laissez-faire, no invisible hand, and all that kind of stuff. And that's the commonality that all those parties have, and that's the one fear that they all have. And, of course, they have no solutions to the economy as far as that goes, other than their fear of the solution for the economy, which ironically is also shared by someone that just surprised the heck out of me, and that's Conrad Black himself, who of course is one of the founding members of the National Post, and who still from his uh, prison cell is writing editorials for the National Post and articles. And, and he did that again uh, in National Post September 20th, rebuilding Wall Street, he said. What should we do to rebuild Wall Street? And he was referring at that time, again, September 20th, to the moral behind the AIG tale. And he, Black referred to, quote, an $85 billion rescue package for a company at which government meddling had already been instrumental in vaporizing $40 billion of shareholder money. Government took away and has tried belatedly to give back. The moral, best not to take away in the first place. But this was just one error among many, writes Mr. Black. And here are the other er uh, errors, he says. Uh, one, nothing has been done in the U.S. tax policy to discourage excessive debt accumulation by the American public. Now, it strikes me that the crisis really isn't about debt. It's about banking insolvency caused by lending out more dollars than they have in cash. And that's related to debt, but it's not a debt problem. You can't blame an individual person who's in debt for this crisis. That's not where the blame goes. Another thing he says, he says nothing has been done to reduce the back-breaking importation of oil. Well, okay, that might be true to some point, but I think it's kind of irrelevant. The plain fact is that oil is imported precisely because it is cheaper than the alternatives. Now, of course, government can be a problem to the extent that it arbitrarily restricts oil development or technology in other places that make it, again, more expensive than going to foreign sources. And perhaps that's what Mr. Black means in this case. And he also complains that China has piled up a $265 billion annual trade surplus with the United States. Now, I think this is a non-issue as well. As Milton Friedman explained in his Free to Choose series, and this is important to know, if a foreign country has a lot of your money, okay, which is just cash, by the way, that means what you've got is their goods, which is the real value and utility that was involved in the trade. But more importantly, if Black's example is correct, for example, that would mean that China has 265 billion U.S. dollars, which are ultimately redeemable only in the United States against U.S. production. And, you know, that U.S. trade deficit, which is how they would look at it, is really a promise to pay on future domestic production of the country whose currency it is. Now, China may not spend, of course, its American dollars directly in America, could use those dollars to buy goods from other countries. But the point is, those dollars will eventually have to be redeemed in the United States, in U.S. production, which means that eventually other countries are going to have to buy American. And the cycle will, of course, turn the other, other way. 
Here's another thing Black uh, objected to. He says, or, the, the deliberate reduction in the value of the U.S. dollar came too late to save manufacturing jobs and went on too long to improve the real buying power of American consumers, he writes. Beyond that, the United States and other countries have fallen too far into the fool's paradise of the service economy. People who make paper clips or rubber bands or the proverbial widget are at least producing something. But as a society, we came to despise blue-collar work as menial, and most of us, and most of it has migrated to formerly third-world places. The merchant banks encourage deal-making and devise ever more complicated and risky financial instruments that eventually get into difficulty. No matter how often this cycle repeats itself, the merchant banks and lending banks are always stung badly at the end of it. This is not unjust, but it is not gentle justice either. And now here it comes to me, the inevitable betrayal and misunderstanding to me at a profound level. And here's what Conrad Black writes, quote, Capitalism does carry the seeds of its own destruction. And odious though government intrusions are, let's say fair economics always brings the roof down eventually, as it did in 1929 on what the eminent writer Edmund Wilson rather assiduously called the pretentious gigantic fraud. In the first step, the U.S. government should raise spending, and bailing out financial institutions will ensure that, increase the money supply, cut the discount rate, and reduce taxes. The present call of both U.S. presidential candidates for more regulation, along with their complaints about greed, are basically nonsense. More power for governments to run the economy is a suicide measure. Now, you know, he wants the government to raise spending, bail out institutions, increase the money supply, all of which will do exactly what we just went through, and reduce taxes. So he wants to increase the deficit even more. So we're going to reduce taxes and increase spending, okay? Get more more into debt. You'd almost think he's trying to get back at the U.S. because they, they locked him up in a jail, right? <laughs> but then, what did, look at his last sentence, you know. Uh, more power for governments to run the economy is a suicide measure. How does he reconcile that statement with capitalism carries the seeds of its own destruction? It just does not make sense. I just read this and I said, holy cow, I think the place must be getting to him. Or maybe he's been hoisted by his own petard and really didn't understand what he was into, and that's maybe why he's sitting in a cell. Who knows? Americans won't take it anymore, says Peter Worthington in the London Free Press. And he says that both Wall Street and Main Street share the blame for the root cause of the financial collapse. I disagree with the premise of these two headlines, uh, but that's not why I cited the article. It's when Worthington makes a side point that I thought the article got interesting. Listen to this. Quote, those ridiculously named mortgage companies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, sparked the crash and have since been taken over by the U.S. government, which is now in the mortgage business. As an aside, two former CEOs of Fannie and Freddie, Jim Johnson and Frank Raines, who got some $90 million for these companies, subsequently became advisors in Barack Obama's campaign. Not reassuring. Fannie Mae contributed $126,000 to the Obama campaign second only to what Fannie gave to the campaign of Chris Dodd, chair of the Senate Banking Committee. And how about U.S. Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, architect of the $700 billion bailout? As CEO of Goldman Sachs, he was paid $37 million in 2005, $165 million in 2006, and when he went to the Treasury, he got $500 million in Goldman Sachs stock. That's half a billion dollars. 
Geez, to some it looks like the fox in the charge of the hen house, end quote, says Peter Worthington. <laughs> you know, there's this great picture, picture slash painting, I guess you'd call it, of Henry Paulson on the front cover of The Economist, and it's September 27th edition. Don't know if you get that magazine or not. And it pictures him in that familiar, you know, that old poster, Uncle Sam Wants You, that they used during World War II, that army recruiting pose. Except in this case, the words read, I want your money. <laughs> so, sounds like he got that money. And now we're all saved, aren't we? Uh, now, this next uh, letter was actually written in the London Free Press. Got to get through it quickly. And I'll, the headline says, First Past the Post Fails Us. However, it's not really what it was about. It was more, it was written by Stan Korchuk in the October 9th Free Press. And he says, The current financial crisis in Canada and elsewhere is rooted in the application of neoliberal capitalism. Again, an attack on capitalism. Each adjective, of course, means not. That which neoliberal means not liberal, and neo-capitalism means not capitalism, but that's fine. And he says, although he's optimistic about eventual recovery, he says, quote, I believe recovery in Canada will take longer than expected, and the side effects will be damaging to our social infrastructure. Ideally, we need a partnership among business, financial institutions, and politicians to arrive at a strategy to resolve this crisis. The problem is the political... The problem is, he says, the political dimension is a weak link, period. End quote for a moment. Now, actually, it's the reverse. The problem is that government's the strong link. Government is not a voluntary organization based on consent when it's involved in partnerships. You know, and when it's involved in a partnership, it's supposed to be policing in the first place. Government... Is supposed to be a gun meant to u be used in the administration of justice. It's not a social organization. It's not a partner. It's not an insurance company or a business underwriter. And it's not the planner or, or of your future and of your life, you know. And that's just what people seem to want more of all the time. And then we get into worse problems because of that same belief. And what do we want? We want more of the same. Then, of course, he gets into how Prime Minister Stephen Harper can possibly represent a majority and all that kind of stuff. And he wants proportional representation. But, hey, with perpetual minority governments, who needs proportional representation? We've already got a situation where no single party is in power in government, and I don't think that's a good thing. And that's because morality, principles, and justice have to be sacrificed to this endless compromise of each party's beliefs. Uh, you know, to the others. They all lose in this. And and there's no accountability in such a government. You know, as Jack Layton says, no party has a mandate to implement an agenda, you know, as if to emphasize the point. Well, if that's true, then no one can govern morally in accordance with their own beliefs, and no one's responsible for what happens. That's not responsible uh, government. And, of course, as always at the heart of this kind of uh, commentary is that passion, again, always against capitalism, which again, characterized as neoliberal, business-can-do-no-harm philosophy, he says, which really is his perspective on what he sees in society and not on capitalism. I just want to know what is harmful about capitalism or business. As far as I see it, the right to personal ownership of something you create or earn, you know, the cardinal rule of consent and of voluntarism when entering into contracts, individual freedom, respecting the similar rights of others, how is any of that harmful? I want to know. And if you want to see business do harm, the odds increase exponentially when you put them into partnerships, like the type Stan's advocating. Government should be the referee in the marketplace, not a player in the game. And when government becomes a player, then you don't, don't have government anymore. Hello? 
And just as an aside, it was a non-first-past-the-post system that gave the Liberals the leader they have now. So, you know, ha, ha, ha. Okay, we're going to take a quick break again, and now here's the late economist Milton Friedman from his 1980 PBS series, Free to Choose, having a last word on how banks create money, which was the process that Paul McKeever was describing in the last clip. And when we return on the other side of this break, we'll see if we can squeeze in a follow-up on last week's sex show controversy and a bit on the Pan Am games, and we'll be back right after this. It's a process that even today, few bankers understand. If you ask an individual banker whether he creates money, he'll look at you as if you're mad. Of course not, he'll say, I don't create money. All I do is I accept deposits from my customers. I put a little of that deposit in the vault as a reserve, and I lend the rest out. I don't create money. From the point of view of the economist, the situation is very different. As I've explained earlier, most of the deposits on the books of banks were put there by an accountant's pen. But that simple fact is concealed from the individual banker because it doesn't happen here inside the bank. It happens as a result of the transactions between banks. As the men who ran the Federal Reserve knew very well, it happens when money loaned by one bank is deposited in another bank to be loaned out yet again. In the Depression, the process was working in reverse. The banks were destroying money. Nonetheless, the Federal Reserve let it happen. The end result was that by the time the whole sorry episode was over, by 1933, the quantity of money in the United States had gone down by a third. The slow throttling had turned into strangulation. For every $3 of currency and deposits that people had had in 1929, only $2 were left. For every three banks that were open in 1929, in 1933, only two were left. It's great to be back in Montreal. I haven't been here in a while. I got uh, propositioned by a hooker last night. That freaked me out. I've never had that happen before. I was like, no, no, thank you. <laughs> I, I never had that before. Because I grew up in a small town, and you just, you don't get hookers in a small town. Just, it wouldn't work, you know? Small town hooker. You know, she'd be out in the curb there, uh, hey, big boy, you want a date? No? All right, well, say hi to Sheila for me. Come <laughs> back. Here's the real skinny on London's sex show rights. Dan Brown in the London Free Press, point of view, October 11th, 08. Quote, for those who didn't make it to the everything to do with sex show last weekend, here's a glimpse inside the event that's generated so much controversy, as well as possible charges under the city's adult entertainment bylaws. And uh, Dan says here he's written this editorial to help those who've attacked or defended the expo without the benefit of any first-hand knowledge, which to me implies that, although he never says so, that he was there himself. And that kind of becomes apparent as one reads on, quote, As one might expect at any trade show, most of the exhibitors were polite, friendly, and helpful. Maybe one or two were obnoxious, but not a one attempted to force their wares on ticket holders or otherwise harass them. The individuals roaming, uh, roaming the room appeared to be normal Londoners. Most of the attendees came with a partner of the opposite sex. 
There were groups of two or three couples. Young women probably composed the second largest segment of ticket buyers. Going from booth to booth, visitors appeared genuinely interested in learning more about how to improve their love lives. Everyone appeared to be there by choice. The gathering was peaceful, informative, fun. We'll find out soon if, according to London's bylaw police, it is also illegal. The mind boggles, end quote. And also writing to the Free Press on this issue was letter writer Susan Slaughter in the Free Press editorial page on October 9th, who says sex show reaction is ridiculous. She says this is now bordering on stupidity. Anyone who took the time to investigate the subject knows that the reactions coming from our local politicians are ridiculous. There's been an entire sexual subculture for years, and now many of our young adults are exploring it. This particular subculture is as old as homosexuality. After spending years teaching people about tolerance and acceptance, it's been decided we can now be judgmental and overbearing in our views. At what point do our elected officials allow us to make decisions for ourselves? Surely anyone who would have been offended should not have attended. My daughter went with my blessing. Education is the key to true knowledge. Sounds like a few people should try it. End quote. Now, I found it interesting that this letter writer introduced the concepts of homosexuality, tolerance, and acceptance in her letter, because there's a subtle message there. She's absolutely right in associating how the very people who preach tolerance and acceptance are usually the ones opposed to uh, not sexuality and sex per se, but definitely to heterosexuality. And uh, it's funny, because for radical man-hating feminists, I think that's kind of understandable, uh, when Megan Walker, remember, protested against the photo of a model in that article that the Free Press had, I think it was called Hot Babes on Hot Bikes or something like that. And, of course, the aim of her anger was at the fact that that periodical and the photos were aimed at men. And that was what she objected to. Uh, the uh, Susan J. ads and all those other ads that were in the same magazine, just as sexy, but they were aimed at women. They were okay. whole whole different thing. And we, we did a whole show on this. But so far, it looks like Megan and her small clique of feminazis seem to be the only ones on their side. And she, she, you know, I read her thing, what she said last week here on the show. She's the one who called the police. She's the one, the self-appointed arbiter of London's community standard. Except that the community's operating on an entirely different standard, and Megan hasn't tuned in yet. Now, my time is running out rapidly. I just wanted to say a couple of things about the Pan Am Games, which I discussed way back on September the 8th. Uh, I noticed here in the October 3rd paper, uh, this is the National Post, huge full page, Races on for the Pan Am Games by Allison Haynes. All the figures in it were exactly the same as what I reported on the show. But what I thought was interesting is how David Peterson got up and he said, uh, what better time there is to invest in our province, you know, it, uh, bad economic times. And uh, what investment, you know, to put $1.7 in and they get $2 billion out if they're lucky. It's like planting one potato, and so you can say you got one potato back. Where's the game? But what I thought was really uh, ironic and delightful was back in the mid-1980s when Mark Emery and myself successfully campaigned against holding the games here in London, then-sports minister and conservative Otto Jelinek argued that because of tough financial times, it would not be appropriate to spend taxpayer dollars to host the Pan Am Games. And now today, we've got Conservative Finance Minister Jim Flaherty arguing that because of tough financial times, now is the time to spend taxpayer dollars on hosting the 1991 or, or the new Pan Am Games. So go figure. And this time they're spending $1.7 billion. Go figure. And David Peterson, of course, was among those leading the charge to promote the 1991 Pan Am Games here in London. And uh, Cuba got those games. We didn't. Can anyone still remember Cuba's legacy?
No? <laughs> well, I could get into more uh, contradictions on this issue. I certainly will in the future, but that'll be a bit down the road. My time is up, and we're going to have to leave you now. And, and I hope it's you'll join us again next week. But even today, when we will continue our journey in the right direction. So until then, be right, do right, act right, and stay right. Take care. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. You go to the grocery store and you stand in front of the lunch meat section for too long, you start to get pissed off at turkeys. You see like turkey ham, turkey pastrami, turkey bologna. Someone needs to tell the turkeys, man, just be yourself. I already like you, little brother. You do not need to emulate the other animals. You got your own thing going.